Hi, I'm Lone Candle, calling the current Chinese-American relationship Cold War II harkens back to Cold War I between the United States and the Soviet Union. Relating this current relationship so closely to the historical one can be highly misleading, because while there are similarities, there are also key differences that make the phrase Cold War more misleading than helpful. However, the phrase Cold War goes back before the rivalry between the Soviet Union and the United States. By a more basic definition of the term, the competitive, tense, and untrusting relationship between the U.S. and China that hopefully will not lead to direct blows is a Cold War, even if not Cold War II. The use of the phrase is still problematic because in most minds it will harken back to the Cold War with the Soviet Union, but the phrase is not inaccurate in and of itself. Many parts of the U.S.-Chinese relationship certainly make it feel like we're in a Cold War. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has said, China is the only country with both the intent to reshape the international order and increasingly the economic, diplomatic, military, and technological power to do it. Beijing's vision would move us away from the universal values that have sustained so much of the world's progress over the past 75 years. He also said, but rather than using its power to reinforce and revitalize the laws, agreements, principles, and institutions that enabled its success, so other countries can benefit from them too, Beijing is undermining it. Under President Xi, the ruling Chinese Communist Party has become more repressive at home and more aggressive abroad. Blinken also said that China is the most serious long-term challenger to the international order, and he has said that the Biden administration will shape the strategic environment around Beijing to advance U.S. interests. Chinese President Xi has told the CCP that they are in for a struggle with the West and that the CCP will prevail in the end. By purchasing power parity, China's economy surpassed that of the United States somewhere between 2013 and 2017. In nominal terms, it may become larger in the 2030s, although it's not clear when and if that will happen. China has long cheated on trade in a variety of ways, including currency manipulation, industrial espionage, requiring companies who want to do business in China to fork over technology, banning certain companies from doing business, stealing intellectual property, stealing technology for commercial purposes, treating its own businesses better, and giving their own companies an advantage through the cooperation of public and private sectors. Hackers of the Chinese government steal personal data from tens of millions of Americans. Fentanyl from China fuels a drug epidemic in the U.S., and China seems to do little to stop it. China's large and quickly modernizing military seems to be aimed at winning wars against the United States and invading Taiwan. China is developing and growing its nuclear arsenal, making it better able to wipe out cities and potentially end civilization as we know it. China is determined to someday retake Taiwan, by force if necessary, and claims a swath of territory in the South China Sea, despite closer countries contesting the claims. And China enforces the claims with their military by building islands out of sand and creating military installations on them. They also have used a maritime militia to bully neighbors in the South China Sea. China influences international institutions to do its bidding and creates new ones that give it further control. Through its Belt and Road Initiative, it builds infrastructure around the world that gives it influence in smaller countries. Chinese anti-imperialist ideology has been a key part of their ideology for a long time, and it has not died down. Chinese rhetoric treats the U.S. and the West like imperial monsters who must be guarded against. China is an authoritarian state led by the officially communist Chinese Communist Party, CCP. While the economy may be mixed, the ideology of the party is thoroughly communist and President Xi won't let officials forget it. He indoctrinates them in Marxism. China's international economic initiatives care not for the democracy or human rights of those it helps and may undermine pressure from others 
to democratize and respect human rights. President Biden has described the competition between the United States and China as one between democracies and autocracies. Chinese President Xi has said that Chinese authoritarianism should be a model for other countries. The CCP bolsters autocrats and undermines democracy across the globe by exporting surveillance systems to governments who have committed human rights violations, training these governments how to use systems to control their society and politics, lauding the advantages of authoritarianism, sharing knowledge in how authoritarian parties can maintain their holds on power, and using opacity in deals with other countries that allow local leaders to use funding directly or through corruption to maintain power. Elites who get Chinese patronage can be controlled by China and can maintain authoritarian government using Chinese support. Chinese leaders see themselves in a protracted and global public opinion war and therefore use propaganda and censorship that affects other countries. They want internal debates in other countries to tilt in China's favor. To shape the discussions and information in foreign countries, China uses official propaganda and media outlets, investment in foreign media, research funding, the covert cultivation of thought leaders, aggressive united front work, the co-option of local civic groups, the threatening of Chinese dissidents, the monitoring of Chinese abroad students, attempts to stop unwanted academic discourse, attempts to influence education about China, Chinese diaspora citizens against parties or candidates it doesn't like, Chinese language media and diaspora communities, content in Chinese language social media like WeChat, cyber tools, and influencing discussions on social media. China's economy continues to advance not only in size, but technological prowess, and they use this skill to compete with the United States even in high-tech spaces. They may use their technological exports to spy on the world. The U.S. openly sees China as a competitive threat and has been trying to pivot to face China since the Obama administration. Since Trump, the U.S. has waged economic warfare with tariffs, most of which continue under the Biden administration. China retaliated with its own tariffs. The U.S. further restricted technology that the U.S. sees as threatening, like microchips, and has gotten several countries to go along with stopping this tech from going to China. China has responded by blocking the export of key minerals. China has long subsidized strategic industries, and the U.S. is ramping up its own public investment in response. The U.S. has been strengthening its relationship with Chinese neighbors who are willing to work with the more distant United States to balance their overbearing neighbor. This includes more military access and exercises. The U.S. continues to finance Taiwan militarily and got NATO to include China in its strategic concept. In an announcement that the U.K., U.S., and Australia would build nuclear submarines together, they said China was the biggest threat to the world economy. China has been building its own anti-American, anti-Western bloc, declaring an unconditional relationship with Russia, and also working closely with Iran. China and the U.S. are trying to get closer to neutral countries and convince them to go along with their plans that the other may not like. China uses its large economy to coerce other countries by using popular boycotts, limits on tourism, and trade restrictions. Countries that support or don't challenge China's interests get benefits, while those that stand against China don't get such rewards and may be punished. China uses gaining and losing access to their market to achieve its ends. For example, China boycotted key resources from Australia because Australia called for an inquiry into the origins of COVID. In 2023, CSIS counted 18 Western and Asian countries that were the target of Chinese weaponized trade since 2008, and over 123 private companies. Targets of Chinese boycotts or trade restrictions include Japan, South Korea, Australia, Lithuania, Norway, France, the Philippines, and the Czech Republic. All this done to force countries to bend the knee, and as a warning to any country thinking of defying China. China is flying spy balloons over U.S. territory, and the U.S. military shoots them down. The competition between the major powers include security architecture, trade and financial regimes, technological development and transfers, and global norms and values. The regions of contestation include every continent, outer space, and cyberspace. Observing this competition with a powerful country controlled by a communist party and fearing that at any moment 
the tensions could escalate to increased economic war or full-blown military warfare. Sure makes it feel like we are in a Cold War. The Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union was a half-century-long standoff between two superpowers, each with their own blocks of allies. On the surface, it wasn't just two powers competing for dominance, but a battle for the ideology that governs the world. The United States believed in democratic capitalism and thought it'd be best if everyone else was democratic capitalist too. While Russia believed in communism, a key tenet of which involves the overthrow of every government in the world and replacing it with communism. This means Soviet ideology was a clear threat to the U.S. and every country on Earth. The U.S. and Russia had little trade with each other and were diametrically opposed on how people should live and be ruled. The two blocs competed around the world for influence and allies, and any spark could lead to both sides' total annihilation in nuclear war. The battle for influence included bloody proxy wars, where each superpower supported a side in a conflict. Sometimes one of the superpowers would be a direct member of the proxy war. For the most part, any gains and losses were viewed in a zero-sum manner. The current rivalry between the U.S. and China has several differences from the Cold War. The Biden administration has said that the competition is about a fundamental difference in core values, including human rights, democratic rights, and the rules-based order. While there are disagreements that create real and potentially dangerous tensions, the ideological differences are not nearly as stark as Biden's rhetoric may make it seem. China is not influencing communist revolution around the globe. China is authoritarian, and that produces differences, and their cooperation with undemocratic countries can sustain or empower authoritarians. But they are not an evangelical communist state. China is happy to help authoritarians and to stand as a model for other countries to follow, but an essential goal of their being is not worldwide communist revolution. China is authoritarian, but the U.S. works with authoritarian countries all the time. Sure, they'd prefer everyone to be a happy democratic capitalist, but relationships with dictators are fine. The Soviets saw capitalism as fundamentally evil. It needed to be overthrown. They sought to gain the obedience of revolutionary socialists around the world to help them overcome capitalism. Socialism with Chinese characteristics wants to harness the positives of capitalism. They don't want worldwide socialist revolution. China is not systematically trying to undermine democracies and replace them with authoritarianism worldwide. China is more focused on maintaining its own legitimacy. Soviet communism provided a greater threat to regimes in the Western world compared to Chinese authoritarianism. To the extent that democracies are vulnerable, it isn't because of China. Neither the U.S. nor China is trying to spread their ideological systems as intensely as during the Cold War. China's economy has grown in the current system. It rests on the current system. It doesn't have the incentive to overthrow it. Although China has notably failed to follow international rules at times, it has also made domestic reforms to meet the rules of the WTO, IMF, and World Bank. They aren't altogether acting like a country that wants to blow up the system. Over time, China cheats less on trade. They have less exchange rate manipulation and lower tariffs, although subsidies and intellectual property issues remain, as do non-tariff barriers and discrimination against foreign companies. China is far from being completely fair but has made much improvement over the decades. While China's government is officially communist, they have a mixed economy. They use and depend on capitalist markets and finance. China uses capitalism to allocate resources and efficiently exchange goods and services. Their economic system is not a polar opposite, but just a further gradient of the mixed economy that all nations employ. Standing up to China's economic cheating is not reminiscent of Cold War because the United States and Russia didn't trade much at all. Trade war is not Cold War. The U.S. and China are huge trade partners. Despite the trade war, they still do tons of business with each other, 
and cutting off such trade and investments would greatly damage both economies. As of 2022, the U.S. imports more goods from China than any other country except Canada and Mexico, and the U.S. exports more to China than it does to any other country. China is the European Union's largest trading partner. 43% of the EU's imports are from China, and 19 of 30 of its critical raw materials are predominantly imported from China. Today, we are talking about interconnected countries, not separate blocks. China is the largest trading partner for many countries. The Soviet Union could never dream of this. In addition to trade and investments, hundreds of thousands of Chinese students study in the U.S. There is a lot of joint research. Furthermore, the two economies were never completely coupled. There were always limits, so adding more doesn't change everything. A potential danger here is that interdependence could work to decrease stability because the countries may feel less secure due to their dependence on their rival. A major difference from the Cold War is that the world of the Cold War was bipolar. The United States and the Soviet Union were the clear two superpowers. That's not so clear today. While the U.S. and China are the top two countries, other powers are relatively much more powerful than they were during the Cold War. In a multipolar world, it is more difficult for a superpower to spread influence and power over more countries. It will require the superpowers to use more negotiation and diplomacy than heavier-handed tactics. The bipolarity of the Cold War resulted in two alliance architectures opposed to each other. While much of this has been retained for the U.S., China has few friends and allies. Its nationalism and disregard for international law as it pursues territorial claims has turned off potential friends and allies. So its allies are limited to North Korea, maybe Russia and Iran. Few countries would likely support China if it decided to invade Taiwan. While the U.S. and China are competing for influence, they are not as much to the point where countries are forced to choose sides. Rather than becoming a client of China or a client of the U.S., most countries do business with both, and the two major powers compete over certain issues and certain actions that countries may take. The global economy may be too integrated to be separated into blocks. Countries will lose too much by cutting off one of the two superpowers. Additionally, instigating regime change would be costly due to the negative global public opinion this would create. Technology has facilitated an interconnectedness that would facilitate a global public outcry. The Cold War could be seen as an international competition to gain ideological and economic subordinate states. China's attempts at influence pale in comparison to what it meant to be a communist country during the Cold War. The U.S. is not as threatened by an authoritarian country as it was by the spreading of communism. Additionally, such influence is more difficult because the world is not bipolar and smaller countries have more options for relationships. China doesn't really have a block. While the U.S. has both formal allies and close partners, China's actual friends remain limited. The closest thing to a useful block is Russia, which has the potential to be very dangerous, but doesn't compare to the fraternity of leading the global communist revolution. The Soviet Union didn't have a lot of allies either, but it did have control of Eastern Europe, including East Germany. China is gaining a lot of influence, and the West should work to check that. But this influence is not allies. The Soviet Union had less worldwide influence than China, but more influence within its bloc countries. China is surrounded by powerful countries. Japan, South Korea, and India help balance China. China has a nuclear arsenal, and is dangerously growing and modernizing it. But the world doesn't live in as much fear of nuclear war. The stakes are also much smaller. On one hand, the size of the stakes may be irrelevant when a war over anything could lead to World War III in nuclear war. But these risks may be lower when what can be lost is smaller. Today's fears are China controlling islands in the South China Sea and the culturally Chinese island of Taiwan. Yesterday's fears were Russian tanks rolling over America's cultural motherlands and key allies in Western Europe. Currently, the likely theater of war between the great powers is naval. During the Cold War, it was land war across Europe. Naval war could have less risk of escalation because naval battles may seem less existential. But, with less escalation chance, war itself may seem less risky and therefore leaders may be more likely to go to war. Additionally, the chances of conflict in space or cyber are higher now than during the Cold War. 
the U.S. and China don't perceive their gains and losses as cumulative like during the Cold War. The U.S. feared losing all of Asia to communism if Korea or Vietnam fell. The U.S. similarly feared that communism would consume Europe. Domino theory struck fear to the hearts of American policymakers. The U.S. doesn't perceive China's authoritarian evangelism as having the same domino threat, although they do have similar fears with regard to Taiwan. The Cold War was characterized by the U.S. strategy of containment. This was to isolate the Soviet Union and stop its ideology from spreading. While the U.S. wants to limit military-related technology from entering China, and it keeps a forward military posture, the U.S. has not yet executed a full-on containment strategy. The U.S. does tons of business with China. It wants to contain China's military technological capacity, but it's not executing a containment strategy akin to the Cold War. Another major difference is that while during the Cold War, the U.S. feared the Soviet Union becoming more powerful and surpassing it technologically, Russia was a fundamentally weaker economy. The U.S. and Russia were relatively static powers. With China's huge population and modernizing economy, the dynamic could be one of China surpassing the U.S. in all measures of power. This could be more dangerous because the threat this poses to the U.S. could incentivize war while it can still win. That said, China's growth is slowed and its long-term demographic problems could prevent a dominant Chinese hegemony. Compared to the Soviet Union, China is more vulnerable to the demands of nationalism and the expectations of further economic improvement. If improvement sputters, nationalism may be the government's key path to legitimacy. Taiwan and the South China Sea may be seen as indivisible, sacred territory, and the CCP couldn't give those claims up even if they wanted to. One key difference is proxy wars. The Cold War wasn't that cold. The Soviets and Americans supported countries and groups at war with each other, and supported countries at war with the other superpower. Such bloody combat showed the tensity of the relationship and the serious negative consequences. Since the end of the Cold War, the U.S. and China have yet to fight a proxy war. A key conflict to watch is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. If China starts to seriously support Russia with military aid, that would be a sign that the U.S. and China are in something more akin to the Cold War. The White House has said that it has not observed China providing military help to Russia for Ukraine. The Ukrainian Defense Ministry's main intelligence directorate has also said it has no evidence of China giving Russia weapons. China provides Russia other support in the form of equipment and materials crucial for military purposes, like transport vehicles, semiconductors, thermal imaging, helmets, body armor, and Chinese companies have sold Russia drones used for intelligence. If this advances, then that would indicate that the Russian-Chinese relationship has grown to something closer to military alliance, and could further indicate that we are in a greater Cold War. In summary, the current relationship between the U.S. and China is not yet one between two ideological and economic blocs facing off in a zero-sum game over the ideology that rules the world, but a competition for influence, technology, and economic prowess between two interdependent and cooperative countries who have ideological differences, but not diametrically opposed ones. A Cold War is not just an analogy to the Cold War between the United States and Russia, but a phrase with a more general meaning. Here are a few definitions. <clears throat> Condition of rivalry, mistrust, and often open hostility short of violence, generally applying to two global powers locked in an escalating rivalry across multiple domains, economics, technology, diplomatics, geopolitics, but absent direct conflict. Intense economic, political, military, and ideological rivalry between nations short of military conflict sustained hostile political policies, and an atmosphere of strain between opposed countries. A continuing state of resentful antagonism between two parties short of open hostility or violence. Hostility and sharp conflict as in diplomacy and economics between states without actual warfare. A state of political hostility and military tension between two countries or power blocks involving propaganda, subversion, 
threats, economic sanctions, and other measures short of open warfare, especially that between the American and Soviet blocs after World War II, the Cold War. A state of extreme unfriendliness existing between countries, especially countries with opposing political systems, that expresses itself not through fighting, but through political pressure and threats. A conflict over ideological differences carried on by methods short of sustained overt military action, and usually without breaking off diplomatic relations. A condition of rivalry, mistrust, and often open hostility short of violence, especially between power groups such as labor and management. A Cold War, as defined by the Cold War, 1947-1991, is one that takes place in a bipolar international system where both sides possess existential weaponry and are delineated by their fundamental ideological differences in regime type and perceive gains and losses as zero-sum and as accumulating across time. Existential weaponry is that which, when used, threatens the continued existence of a targeted society, or indeed all of them. First thing to notice is the last definition is less a general definition of a Cold War than a definition of the historical Cold War, and that difference is reflected in how specifically the definition matches the historical Cold War. I've taken four necessary components to a Cold War out of these definitions. 1. Rivalry between two countries or blocs. 2. Some sort of hostility or antagonism. 3. Lack of direct violent conflict. 4. The competitions take place across multiple domains. They are not just a rivalry or competition over one or a couple issues. A few components I see as supplementary and not necessary. 1. Ideology. Two powerful countries can disagree about who controls what and compete in a variety of domains without having a key ideological difference. Many empires and nations in history have had similar governing ideologies, but have nevertheless been heated rivals. 2. Weapons of mass destruction. 3. Bipolarity. Although a competition between two blocs or countries is a key component, it doesn't require a bipolar international system. The competition could be between two regional powers. 4. Zero-sum. Any competition has to have some zero-sum elements, but the entire relationship doesn't necessarily have to be zero-sum and maybe large parts of it could be win-win while still maintaining a Cold War antagonism. The current relationship between the U.S. and China meets all four necessary components. One, the rivalry is primarily between the U.S. and China, and to the extent that allies are involved, they choose a side, maintaining the dynamic of a competition between two blocs or countries. Two, the U.S. and China clearly have a level of hostility displayed in both rhetoric and actions. 3. The competition between the two has not yet turned into direct violence. 4. The U.S. and China have been competing in space, cyber, trade, the rules of the international system, international norms, territory, technology, and influence in other countries. It is clearly a multi-domain competition. By meeting the four necessary components, we can declare the relationship between the U.S. and China a Cold War. However, the rivalry is weaker on the additional four. 1. The U.S. and China have a clear ideological component to their competition. They have different views on certain international norms, and China is pro-authoritarianism while the U.S. is anti-authoritarianism. But neither is fully committed to remaking the world in its image. It's not clear that the ideological differences are driving the rivalry. 2. While both countries have weapons of mass destruction, and China is growing and modernizing their force, there doesn't seem to be the ever-present threat of global nuclear war. 3. China and the U.S. are the top two countries, but the next-tier countries are also quite powerful, and not all of them want to join the Chinese or American blocs. 4. The deep trade, investment, and immigration ties between the two countries make much of their relationship win-win rather than zero-sum. China, on the surface at least, is committed to solving several international problems through multilateral efforts. In part, discussing the non-essential components repeats the previous discussion on how the current rivalry differs from the Cold War. 
It also begins to show why calling this relationship a cold war can be misleading. Therefore, it may be better to say rivalry or strategic competition. Understanding the nature of this competition requires understanding what China wants. If China simply sought to become powerful and not change anything, then the U.S. and China would still compete economically, but there wouldn't be the same level of antagonism in military preparation. More specifically, I'm describing what China's leaders want, so I'll often refer to what the Chinese Communist Party wants, rather than China as an entire nation. That said, I could be even more specific and describe the desires of particular leaders because the CCP itself is a huge organization. But I will use the CCP terminology, even though I really mean the leaders of the CCP, who are the leaders of China. I've categorized the CCP's wants into 15 buckets. These heavily overlap and affect each other. Some may be goals that only matter because they help the CCP achieve one of the other more fundamental goals. 1. To be respected as a major global power and end humiliations. 2. To become the dominant power in the Asia-Pacific and remove U.S. military influence from the region. 3. To become the predominant global power. 4. To protect its own regime. 5. To continue to develop. 6. To make sovereignty a premier international norm or rule. 7. To de-emphasize human rights as an international norm or rule, or to change the definition of human rights. 8. For socialism and authoritarianism to be legitimated internationally. 9. To influence international institutions. 10. To change international law and norms to its liking. 11. To be preeminent in technology. 12. To control claimed territory. 13. To have influence in foreign countries. 14. To control its own suborder. 15. To end systems of alliances. Number 1. To be respected as a major global power and end humiliations. China is one of the world's great civilizations, one of the world's ancient civilizations. China is the oldest living civilization, with a line from its current nation back to its ancient history. China remembers its history as the one great power of the world and the middle kingdom to which all others pay respects. China, the center of civilization, in the center of the world. This belief was based partially on ignoring how large the world was, but still, within its region, there was a lot of truth to it. China was the civilizational center of the Far East, the most powerful political unit, and led the world in certain technologies. This all came crashing down when European powers approached a weak Chinese dynasty and carved off pieces of land. During World War II, Japan temporarily took much territory and committed horrible atrocities. Chinese weakness and loss of territory is considered a great humiliation. The CCP wants to return China to its former status. They want China to be powerful and influential. They want previous humiliations ended. Especially since the end of the Cold War, the CCP has strived to return China to greatness. This greatness should not only include hard power, but recognition from the world that China is a major global power and a special civilization. 2. To become the predominant power in the Asia-Pacific To become great again, China first must become the dominant regional power, with nearby countries subservient, either out of respect, dependency, or fear. The Asia-Pacific region is defined differently in different places. Here, I am referring to countries from India in the west to Japan and Samoa in the east, and from Japan and China in the north to Australia and New Zealand in the south. Including Pakistan and Mongolia would also roughly fit this working conception. Bending a country as large as India to its knees may be unlikely. But China's economic and military power realistically could dominate the rest of the Asia-Pacific. Historically, 
China was the premier power of their local region. The power of surrounding countries paled in comparison, except a few times when foreign peoples conquered China. But even then, the conquerors didn't add China to the Mongolian or Manchurian empires, but became the new Chinese dynasty. Surrounding nations officially recognized the high place of China. The CCP wants a return to this high place. They want military and economic dominance of the region. China's huge economy makes many local countries dependent on it. And the CCP can use this leverage for control. China has already used its military to take islands claimed by other countries, build islands and seas claimed by other countries, and build military installations on disputed territory. Australia, who heavily exported to China, suffered a Chinese boycott. So, the CCP is willing to use military and economic means to influence its region. Creating a zone of dependence would allow China to prevent a unified front against its territorial claims and any other issue of disagreement. China wants regional predominance, not harmony among equals. China cannot throw its weight around to its fullest extent as long as the United States maintains military power in the region. The smaller countries can use the U.S. to balance against China. The underlying threat that China may use force is weakened when the U.S. may intervene. From Singapore to the Philippines to Taiwan to Japan, the United States has military installations. A major power from across the sea having such power right off China's coast is seen as a continuation of the humiliations. It also limits the extent that China can extend its power into the Pacific and is a constant threat to trade routes that could be blockaded or interrupted. So, two, protect trade routes, extend its power further out, and a humiliation, and be the predominant military in its local region, the CCP wants the U.S. out of its region, which would make China by far the most powerful country and allow it to dominate. China wants U.S. naval and air forces out of the Western Pacific, meaning the South and East China Seas. They see the South China Sea like the Americans saw the Caribbean in the 1800s and early 1900s, an extension of their land territory. Controlling this would allow their navy to focus on projecting power out into the Pacific and Indian Oceans. The U.S. wants the Indo-Pacific to have no dominator and it wants maritime access to remain free. China sees this as a U.S. strategy to maintain military primacy. China wants the people of Asia to find solutions to Asia's problems and to maintain Asia's security. China wants to create security institutions and partnerships to enhance its influence in Asia. They want a security architecture that is exclusively Asian, free of alliances, more focused on domestic security, less liberal, and rooted in Chinese economic power. They also want a security architecture more supportive of CCP ideology and principles. China sees U.S. alliances as not part of the international order, but as part of a strategy to contain China. The CCP weakens the U.S. alliance network where it can. For example, China has become one of Thailand's largest weapons suppliers and a close exercise partner. Additionally, China is promoting Asian institutions that the U.S. has no role in. China's preference for dominance and dependence don't end in the Asia-Pacific, but their interest and relative power are greatest there. So that's where their efforts have gone the furthest. Three, to become the predominant global power. The CCP would prefer not to stop at the Asia Pacific. While China cannot dominate the world like it potentially can its region, it has the potential to be the number one global power who wields more influence than all other countries. It could become the largest economy with the best technology, most powerful military, and being the country that leads the formation of international rules. This may sound like a grand ambition, but China already wields much power. And if something happens to the United States, who would stand in China's way? As the greatest and oldest civilization on earth, the CCP sees it as only natural for China to lead the world. The CCP's goal is to displace the U.S. as the world's top country. The current Chinese leader, Xi, wants to achieve this and other goals so that he can be seen as equal to Mao and Deng. Four, to protect its own regime. From the grandiose desire of becoming the most powerful and influential country on earth, 
to the bare minimal goal of survival. I'm not talking about the survival of China, but the survival of the Chinese Communist Party as rulers of China. The CCP seems well in control, but regimes can end fast, and authoritarians must always be on the watch for rebellion. Much of the CCP's motivation stem from securing its power from both internal and external threats. China has a huge and diverse population. Much of the country is still fairly poor. The Communist Party has little inherent legitimacy. Its legitimacy rests on its promise to improve the lives of its people through economic development or slash and on making China great again, which includes making it a great power and reclaiming lost territory. Externally, China fears direct foreign intervention, as well as influence that could lead its people to question the rule of the CCP. Tiananmen Square, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and the easy U.S. victories in the Gulf War in Kosovo shocked China. They feared their own people, they feared U.S. hostility and hegemony, and they feared that the U.S. was trying to overthrow the CCP. They saw the color revolutions and perceived the U.S. as puppet master. Same with the Arab Spring. They believed that the U.S. may do to them what they thought the U.S. did to those countries. It can be argued that the new Cold War with China started with U.S. actions in Kosovo. The military intervention went around the Security Council, was arguably against international law, and was alarming for Russia and China. Some CCP leaders may think that the Cold War never ended, and that the evil, capitalist, imperialist West are coming for the Chinese socialists next. They think that the West is trying to end Chinese socialism and foment unrest. Since the Soviets' fall, the CCP has suspected that the U.S. would use Cold War tactics on it, and has been working to win that war ever since. A part of protecting the CCP is not allowing an alternative, especially a fellow Chinese society that has succeeded in democratic capitalism. If Hong Kong and Taiwan, Chinese societies, can have vibrant capitalist democracies, then why can't all Chinese people? The CCP has to crush Hong Kong and Taiwan because their example as an alternative is a threat to the CCP's hold on power. China's economic development could be threatened by blockade. One third of global trade passes through the South China Sea. 60% of China's trade and 80% of its imports pass through the South China Sea and through the Malacca Strait. A motivation for Chinese power is to protect these trade routes. China's Belt and Road is meant to counter this creating alternative land routes. The U.S. has military bases in South Korea, Japan, Guam, and Singapore. It operates out of the Philippines, including three bases in the north near Taiwan. The U.S., Japan, India, and Australia cooperate to counter China in a system known as the Quad. They have military exercises together and strategize how to defend against China. The U.S. is also working more closely militarily with other countries in the region. China fears that the U.S. is practicing containment, and could use its string of military bases to cut China off economically in event of a crisis. Many of the CCP's goals are motivated at least in part by the desire for the CCP to survive. 5. To continue to develop. The CCP wants China to continue its development path into a high-income country. This serves several purposes. 1. It benefits the Chinese people, improving their lives. 2. Development will maintain support for the CCP. 3. A larger economy means more power to influence international relations and to build an advanced military. This is an internal goal, but the development of the country is benefited from outside trade, markets, resources, investment, and technology. So, the CCP acts internationally with China's economic development in mind. 6. To make sovereignty a premier international norm or rule. State sovereignty, the idea that each state is the master of its own territory, was the king of the European Westphalian system. Today, it competes with the idea that interfering in another country with military force can be justified. The CCP wants the clear and consistent standard to be that one country can never interfere in the internal doings of another, and foreign invasion is never justified. It justifies its own military actions and plans by claiming that the territory it takes by force is rightfully China's. China wants sovereignty and self-determination to be held sacrosanct. China extols sovereignty whenever it can. 
insist on it as a bedrock principle of the international system and influences international institutions to support this principle. They believe in the principle, at least partly, in order to discourage foreign interference in their partners and to discourage foreign interference in China itself. 7. To de-emphasize human rights as an international norm or rule or to change the definition of human rights. To those whose cultures are steeped in human rights, the idea that every human has some sort of unique value seems self-evident. But historically, many cultures have mainly valued their in-groups, or slash and, not seeing each life as independently valuable. Through a long evolution of Christianity and the Enlightenment, the West has developed the idea that each human has value, and is entitled to human rights that supersede any edicts or laws of an earthly government. Western countries don't believe in an obligation to intervene any time human rights are violated, but can and have used human rights as a justification. The CCP fears that such a justification will be used against China. The invasion of Iraq and the intervention in Kosovo greatly concerned the CCP. They imagine the West doing the same to them. This seems quite unrealistic to me, but even if the intervention was by means other than military, this could damage China. Even criticism of China's human rights record hurts its international legitimacy and soft power, so the CCP tries to stop such criticism. If the human rights regime has less power, then China's influence may increase. The CCP also fears that the Chinese people may demand respect for human rights or democracy. Thus, China does what it can to extol its rejection of human rights. China is against human rights being used to interfere in other countries' internal affairs. Like with sovereignty, China works with like-minded countries and within international institutions to push for limiting human rights. One tact the CCP takes is by changing the definition of human rights. China has spoken against a one-sized-fits-all approach to human rights. It wants international human rights law to be state-to-state -state rather than multilateral, does not want a responsibility to protect individual rights, wants basic human rights to be subject to negotiation and compromise, and wants civil society to play no significant role. So rather than seeing human rights as universal truths, China sees them as negotiable and something that can be violated by states within their own territory. China defines human rights based on social and economic rights. The focus should be on food, shelter, and basic needs, not the luxuries of rights like free movement. China considers colonialism, imperialism, hegemonism, and racism as human rights violations, and is against universal human rights and human rights monitoring. A Chinese understanding of human rights has two categories, individual and corporate. Individual rights are civil, economic, and political entitlements. Corporate human rights are national rights of self-determination and economic development. Individual rights rely on the institutional foundation of corporate rights in order to work. Colonialism, imperialism, hegemonism, and racism deny or oppress a country's statehood and economic autonomy, and therefore are human rights violations. A strong state independent from foreign exploitation, humiliation, and invasion is human rights because it creates political independence and economic autonomy. This also means that international human rights and humanitarian intervention into domestic affairs are violation of corporate rights. Human rights support state power, rather than limit it. The human rights of individuals are wholly given by the state. China endorses human rights norms, but interprets human rights in a self-serving way. China has joined multiple human rights conventions, but does not enforce them. China wants to change norms and procedures to minimize scrutiny of government's conduct. It also wants to limit the bodies that discuss human rights. China doesn't just want to protect itself from accountability, but other countries too. They want to control research and reports worldwide. China wants to use human rights bodies too, stop their power to challenge China, praise China, and change international norms. 8. For socialism and authoritarianism to be legitimated internationally. The CCP wants the respect of the world, and that is difficult to do when powerful countries look down upon authoritarian governments. 
The CCP also fears that its people will be influenced by international anti-authoritarian attitudes. Therefore, China works, like it does with sovereignty and human rights, to legitimate authoritarian government, and socialism in particular. The CCP does this with rhetoric and through international institutions, but also takes actions that can support authoritarian governments and undermine democracies. The more authoritarians in the world, the less China can be singled out. The CCP may view this as an ideological struggle. Authoritarianism versus democracy. Socialism versus capitalism. The world order was made by a democratic country. To protect itself and quasi-allies, China needs to subvert democracy and especially Taiwan, which is a successful democracy in a Chinese cultural setting. The CCP needs to shape international norms and institutions to legitimize its own system. As it pursues the legitimization of its single-party authoritarianism over liberal democracy, it infuses this difference with its ideas of China's cultural and civilizational superiority. 9. To influence international institutions To advance their prestige, power, and legitimacy, and to advance the norms of sovereignty, anti-human rights, and authoritarianism, China works hard to influence international institutions and make them work for them, or at least not work against them. China wants more shared control of global governance, less U.S. domination, and to stop Taiwan from acting independently in institutions. China likes neutral institutions that don't push America's liberal agenda or security interest. China supports international institutions aligned with its goals and tries to undermine those that go against its goals and norms. While nationals from different countries are supposed to work for institutions like the UN, WTO, and WHO to advance the goals of those institutions, Chinese nationals work to advance the goals of China. China's influence can be seen in its manipulation of the World Health Organization and to not properly investigate COVID's origins. The WHO didn't simply fail to investigate properly, but repeated Chinese misinformation as China tried to hide aspects of the outbreak in their country. The UN and WHO have also failed to investigate China on other issues. China also uses government-organized, non-governmental organizations to spread its norms. They are especially targeting Africa. At the UN, China blocks investigations into both its own human rights violations, but also that of other countries. China has used UN security guards to stop a Uyghur Muslim activist from entering the UN headquarters in New York. It has stopped the accreditation of NGOs that critique human rights. 10. To change international law and norms to its liking. Key norms the CCP wants to change have been discussed, but they would also like, as much as possible, to write their preferences into international law. China wants to rewrite the rules of the international system. The authoritarian government wants to use the rules to further its interests. It doesn't necessarily have a belief in the rule of law. China sees international law as a potential weapon for them to use. China is a part of the UN, including the Security Council, the WTO, the IMF, and other bodies. They have signed thousands of bilateral treaties. Chinese representatives lead several UN specialized agencies. Chinese officials often speak about international law and portray China as its defender and builder. Yet, they remain concerned that international law could be used against China's sovereign interests. China has a mixed record in meeting its international legal obligations, but they are not dismissive of international law. They argue that China complies or is getting there, and try to persuade others to accept their legal positions. They also try to influence non-legally binding norms. China wants to be a part of the global consensus, rather than a spoiler of international harmony. They want to be viewed as a responsible leader of a multilateral order. China tries to adhere to a lot of international law, and often makes excuses to justify their actions under their interpretation of international law, rather than reject the law entirely. Other times, China seems to not enforce rules much at all, like intellectual property, the law of the sea, and human rights. China obeys international rules when practicable, and overlooks them when not. Other countries are often similar in this regard. China doesn't normally openly flout international rules, 
but China will skirt and sometimes flout to gain competitive advantage. For certain key industries, China seems less concerned about international trade rules. Both the U.S. and China try to adjust international law to make it fit their preferences, or ignore it. Major powers will ignore international law if it goes against a core interest. The U.S. has also ignored, evaded, and rewritten rules when it felt it needed to. International law is often vague and contested, so determining China's compliance can be difficult or misleading. Compliance can be in the eye of the beholder. China has become more bellicose as its power has risen, and it's possible with its power and view of itself as a great power, it may ignore more international rules. China does not like it when the U.S. acts outside of international law and multilateral mechanisms. However, China would like to have exceptionalism itself. The South China Sea is an example, ignoring the permanent court of arbitration's ruling in favor of the Philippines. It instead has militarized its disputed claims. Taiwan and the South China Sea are probably special issues and should not be taken as a general Chinese rejection against international law and norms. 11. To be preeminent in technology Ancient China famously was leaps and bounds ahead of Europe technologically. China wants to return to that world-leading status. To achieve their economic and military goals, China has to be on the bleeding edge of technology. So it has been investing, innovating, and stealing its way to technological prowess. China wants to become a cyber superpower. It wants its technology adopted across the world and its applications used. It often blocks foreign competitors in its own markets, which provide protection to its own technology and helps them control information within China. China wants to be the foremost space power by 2045. They are quickly catching up to the United States. 12. To control claimed territory. The CCP is determined to make good on and maintain its claims in the South China Sea and Taiwan. It has other prominent claims on the border with India and over the Senkaku Islands with Japan. The island claims involve fisheries, oil, and trade routes, so part of China's motivations are economic, but control would also give China military advantages and help it achieve historical claims that have sentimental importance to many Chinese. China sees Taiwan's independence as the West and the U.S. continuing China's humiliation by controlling Chinese territory and threatening China's only coastline. Many Chinese citizens have been so revved up over Taiwan that they expect their government to retake the island, and failing to do so could threaten the CCP's hold on power. So, Taiwan isn't just important to achieve the aspiration of a whole China and an ending of humiliations, but to keep the CCP in power through the legitimacy granted by achieving this nationalistic goal. Control of Taiwan would also give China greater control over the South China Sea, and would make China more technologically advanced overnight. Financially, resource-wise, law-wise, and militarily, China is doing everything one would do if they planned on invading Taiwan soon. She repeatedly says he is going to unite China with Taiwan. The chances of China invading Taiwan are very high, and a Chinese victory may not end there. Dominance over Southeast Asia and Oceania may be next. 13 to have influence in foreign countries. To achieve its aims, China wants to have influence in foreign countries in a few areas. It wants access to natural resources, markets, and trade routes. It wants other countries to support its preferred norms and not work against them. The CCP also tries to control the conversation in other countries as it relates to norms and China's other goals. Furthermore, influence across the world is a part of being a great and preeminent power. One project that may produce influence is China's Belt and Road Initiative. It's not clear that Belt and Road's goal is influence in creating dependencies. It may be focused on recycling domestic surpluses into projects that could be productive for recipient states in ways that help China and the recipient. But the cooperation, debt, and general dependence on China related to Belt and Road create influence in recipient countries. Belt and Road gives China leverage to pressure countries to support China's norms and international agenda in international bodies. Belt and Road projects mostly ignore human rights and environmental standards, don't listen to people who may be harmed by the projects, are opaque deals prone to corruption, and have weak labor standards. Belt and Road provides an alternative to Western international development. 
They don't loan based on the same standards, potentially making them more appealing. The CCP uses whatever leverage it can to influence the conversation in other countries. University administrators and academics have self-censored to avoid angering Chinese officials, and Chinese students have had their families threatened because of what they said in class. Other expats have also had their families threatened. The CCP tries to get digital platforms to censor people who are not in China, and uses market access to force companies to censor. Marriott, Mercedes-Benz, and the NBA have all dealt with Chinese threats. China sanctioned merchandising and broadcast of the Houston Rockets because a team staff member tweeted in favor of Hong Kong democracy. International companies have even fired employees who have expressed views critical of China. The CCP's suppression of speech does not stop at its borders. Other countries often help China by spreading lies and derailing discussions in international bodies by flooding them with bullshit. China can use its economic influence to pressure countries to do such a thing. China has mass media enterprises in multiple languages that spread their pro-authoritarian and anti-democracy propaganda. 14. To control its own suborder. If the CCP can't become the global hegemon or can't significantly change the current order, they may want a partial system instead. This subsystem would be led by China like it was the Middle Kingdom. Others would be in subordination. Such a system would not need to be limited to China's region, but could include up to all of the non-Western world. While China would not have imperial control, it would develop interdependencies with smaller countries and use its economic and military power to have great influence in exchange for political, economic, and security benefits. This would be like a large Chinese sphere of influence. This suborder could be a stepping stone to global hegemony. China could get to global hegemony by starting with its region, then moving worldwide, or it could establish its economic ties across the world and gain power in global institutions. It would not militarily push the U.S. out of East Asia, but would be the leader of economic rules, technological standards, and political institutions. It may be that economic and technological power are more important than military power. Militarily, Anti-access-slash-aerial-denial may be enough. 15. To end systems of alliances As discussed in the Asia-Pacific section, the CCP wants to end the U.S. systems of alliances. It envisions a community of common future for mankind and wants to create networks of strategic partnerships and replace the U.S. alliance system. Despite the rhetoric or slash and goal of wanting a world without alliances, China is developing deep ties with Russia, Cambodia, Pakistan, and Iran. Russia, Iran, and China may be forming an anti-US or anti-Western bloc. 15. The various CCP desires are in direct conflict with many US preferences. These could lead to even worse relations or war. The way both countries have identified each other as a chief rival and threat, and are acting accordingly, makes this a Cold War. But it is not Cold War II, because the first Cold War was a Manichaean contest between good and evil, where the two sides had directly opposed systems, and the communists explicitly wanted worldwide revolution. The Soviet Union threatened a full-scale land invasion of the United States' historical cultural heartland, Western Europe. Every country that turned to communists could lead to a series of dominoes that turned the world against freedom. The U.S.-Chinese relationship is tense and covers many issues that could lead to worsening relations or war, but the nature of the struggle is starkly different than that of the Cold War. China wants changes on certain issues, but does not have a long-term goal of overthrowing democracy worldwide to lead the globe in its communist future. The U.S. and China must work to either resolve these issues, or to at least not let them spoil the relationship. China is a rival. One competes with rivals, but does not destroy them. Rivals are not enemies. 
even if the U.S. tries to limit China's military technology and military reach, the countries are still not diametrically opposed on the world order. The world order may be able to uncomfortably adjust to China's rise without being overturned or without splitting the world into blocks. The United States and China are interconnected countries and peoples that have far more to gain from cooperation than from hot war or cold war. The U.S. should stand strong and not let China have its way on all of its goals, but should also give China's power the respect it deserves. This is difficult because China makes demands that the U.S. can't assent to, and China likely feels that it is not being respected as long as the U.S. does not give in. For example, having U.S. bases off its coast and the U.S. protecting Taiwan are seen as disrespectful insults to China. So if the only way for China to feel respected is for the U.S. to capitulate, then China won't ever feel respected. Because China threatens to use military force against democracies, steals disputed territory with their military, has no respect for human rights, and may demand more and more influence and power if not halted, the U.S. should stand up to China. This will create tensions in a Cold War-like atmosphere, but doesn't need to devolve into the acrimony and all-out rivalry of the Cold War. The United States has a lot of work to do to limit China's cheating and its military capacity. The U.S. must make itself and its partners strong enough to deter Chinese aggression. Competing in such a competition will not come cheap. Can the American people and the world be motivated to make the sacrifices necessary if not viewed in the light of Cold War? Maybe a Cold War framing will help motivate the U.S. and its partners to deter China. Or maybe such a framing will strike such fear into the Chinese that they'll decide that their only option isn't tense competition with a rival, but outright victory over an enemy. Strategically, Cold War framing could go in either or both directions. Either way, the phrase Cold War is too often misleading because it exaggerates the negativity of current relations. So, for the time being, I will call the relationship a rivalry or competition. Well, I'm Lone Candle. And you can like me, comment me, and love me. Because, whoa, I need.